This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about changes that are happening within plant communities in desert ecosystems here on the Colorado Plateau and in deserts around the world. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. So the fact that this is happening globally at a global scale to areas that were historically grasslands are becoming more shrubland or woodland, that could argue that it's a global climate phenomena or a global phenomena like atmospheric CO2 enrichment, which arguably might favor woody plants over herbaceous plants like grasses. That gets into photosynthetic physiology and metabolism. So there's some underlying physiological reasons why an increase in CO2 might favor this group of plants we call woody plants over these plants we call grasses. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. Steve Archer. Steve is a professor in the School of Natural Resources and Environment at the University of Arizona. There, Steve studies the wide-scale shift in desert ecosystems that are moving from areas mostly made up of grasses to areas that are dominated by woody plants and shrubs. This transition is both wide-reaching and has large effects for the desert systems that we know. We begin the interview with Steve explaining the differences between woody plant communities and grasslands here in the Southwest. There's kind of contrasting plant life forms that start out with herbaceous and then going up to woody. And there are different gradations of those. So a lot of the the Great Plains, for example, was grassland. And now if you start adding a few scattered woody plants into this grassland, then that comes into what we might call a savanna. So a grassy matrix with scattered woody plants in it. And then those woody plants, depending on the climate and the soils, might be shrubs, or they might be what we call arborescence, which would be like pinyon and juniper, or they might be trees. So if we're in the, in the eastern part of the Great Plains, in Kansas and, and uh, Nebraska, near the eastern deciduous forest, they might be full-on trees that are moving into the tall grass prairies. So there's kind of a gradient of woodiness and a gradient of stature. So one of the big questions that's been confronting us uh, since settlers came to North America is this idea of changing from a grass-dominated ecosystem to a woody plant-dominated ecosystem. So we've seen this historic shift across the Great Plains and the Southwest and in, and in the cold deserts uh, where the ratio of herbaceous vegetation to woody vegetation has been shifting in favor of woody plants. Depending upon the soils and depending upon the climate, that shift might be from a grassland to a shrubland or from a grassland to a woodland or from a grassland to a forest. Then that brings up all kinds of questions about, well, what are the drivers of these changes? Why have these changes been occurring? Well, we know from the geological record, like from pack rat middens, that through the Holocene, like the last 10, 12,000 years, that, that it appears that climate has oscillated between a climate that favors grasslands and a climate that favors, in the southwest, shrublands and woodlands. So with the retreat of the Pleistocene glaciers, you know, grassland, shrubland, grassland, woodland balances have shifted three or four times in the last 10,000 years. 
And that was before humans were really on the scene in any kind of scale to have been driving changes. So we know climate's important. And we know that things fluctuate driven by periodic drought, for example. So climate's certainly one factor that we always have to kind of keep in mind. And of course, that's becoming increasingly more important because we're seeing shifts in climate. And we're asking questions like, well, how will these shifts favor future grass-shrub balances? But then another thing that happened throughout the Holocene then is the settlers arrived in North America with large numbers of cattle, sheep, and horses. And we know that grazing back in the 1800s was largely unregulated. So the idea then that grasses are now being utilized heavily by these new herbivores in large numbers and high concentrations, now we've removed their ability to competitively exclude these woody plants. So historically, seedlings of woody plants may have not been able to effectively establish in our historic grasslands because of the grass competition. But the other thing the grasses do is provide fine fuel for fire. Fire would be another impediment to woody plant establishment and recruitment into larger size classes. We've done a lot of different studies to try and tease apart the effects of fire, grazing, and climate. Heavy continuous livestock grazing in the late 1800s and early 1900s virtually eliminated fires from a lot of our western ecosystems and the Great Plains ecosystems because there was no fine fuel to carry a fire. And so now you've opened the door for woody plants to establish and grow to large sizes and higher densities than historically they would have ever been able to. In the Southwest, when you're talking about these transitions and the fact that we're seeing less grasslands and more woody plants coming in, what kind of scale are you talking about? That's a really interesting question, uh, and there's not a real clear answer to that. The scale issue is kind of one of the things that, again, you can lend to different interpretations about what are the drivers. So if you step back and take kind of a global scale, you can say, hey, this woody plant encroachment or proliferation, as we sometimes call it, to make a distinction between invasion, which connotes species that were introduced into an area from another part of the world, exotic plants or non-native plants. So in many cases, these woody plants that are proliferating are natives and have been here for a long, long, long time. But they've just expanded, not necessarily expanded their geographic ranges, but they've increased in density and abundance within their historic ranges. Up to this point, we're seeing largely here in North America what we call proliferation or encroachment into areas where historically they habitats they weren't there. So if you step back at the global scale and you say, well, this encroachment or proliferation phenomena, we find a lot of examples of it uh, in South America. We find examples of it in Australia. We find a lot of examples of it in Africa, parts of Asia, and of course here in North America. So the fact that this is happening globally at a global scale to areas that were historically grasslands are becoming more shrubland or woodland, that could argue that it's a global climate phenomena or a global phenomena like atmospheric CO2 enrichment, which arguably might favor woody plants over herbaceous plants like grasses. That gets into photosynthetic physiology and metabolism. So there's some underlying physiological reasons why an increase in CO2 might favor this group of plants we call woody plants over these plants we call grasses.
And so at local scales, at the scale of a pasture or an allotment, the land use practices may be really behind whether or not and the degree to which grasses get displaced by woody plants. When you say land use practices, do you mean historic or current? That's both. So in the past, there wasn't much land management per se. It was kind of a free-for-all. It wasn't until the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934 where we started to even put regulations and limits on grazing capacity and how many livestock we should turn out into an area and how long we should leave them there. Back in those days, early 1900s, we didn't know a lot about land management and what we now call range management. And so it was kind of a classic tragedy of the commons. People just put out as many animals as they could afford because that was their livelihood and their their survival depended on it. With the advent of range management uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we started taking kind of a, an objective scientific approach to trying to understand how to livestock in combination with wildlife, interact to influence the vegetation of an area. And so selective grazing by cattle might open the door for woody plant encroachment, as we've kind of talked about. But by the same token, selective browsing by certain animals, like elk or deer, might keep woody plants in check if they're selectively using the woody plants over the grasses. And so we see examples in Yellowstone Park, for example, when the wolf populations were decimated, the elk populations expanded, and things like birch and willow and aspen ecosystems in Yellowstone Park underwent a serious demise until we kind of reestablished the appropriate level of browsers in the system. Or in some parts of the Great Plains, back in the early 1900s, prairie dogs were considered competitors with cattle uh, and sheep for the forage. And so there were widespread prairie dog eradication programs in in the Great Plains and even in the Southwest. Well, prairie dogs utilized woody vegetation. That would have prevented woody plants from invading and and taking over an area. So large-scale prairie dog eradication programs, like large-scale fire suppression programs, like widespread livestock grazing, all created opportunities for these woody plants that we see now today dominating many landscapes to come in. And a lot of this started happening in the early 1900s. When an area transitions from a grassland dominated to a a woodland dominated system what changes other than the obvious you know the grasses are now woody plants what changes in the system one of the first things that happens is we're changing habitat for the animals in an ecosystem so if you think about it you know grassland ecosystems evolved and there are certain plants and animals that are endemic to these things we call grasslands. So as you start to add woody plants to these ecosystems, you're starting to change the habitat of the plants and animals that evolved with those systems. So things like pronghorn or things like rattlesnakes or many species of grassland birds, avifauna, uh, songbirds, they start to disappear when woody plants start to come in. So as you increase woody plant cover, you're losing the plants and animals that are endemic to our grassland ecosystems. And so from a biodiversity conservation standpoint, that's a concern. When you start changing the types of vegetation, you start changing the fundamental function of ecological systems. So you start changing how much water the vegetation is using, what their seasonality is, their phenology. You're starting to change how much carbon they sequester. You're starting to change the longevity of that carbon sequestration. 
the productivity of the system, how much biomass it produces over time, and how much biomass is allocated to the below ground structures like roots versus above ground structures like leaves and stems. So you're fundamentally changing then the land cover. And when you change that land cover, now you're changing how that land surface is interacting with the near surface meteorology, how it affects things like turbulence and wind flow and land surface atmosphere interactions. And so that in turn can influence like local meteorology and local weather, like where clouds form and what's the probability of rainfall in that area now that you've changed that surface hydrology and how that land surface is interacting with that low environment. And some woody plants are emitters of non-methane hydrocarbons. So they emit these chemicals that can influence the half-life of greenhouse gases and affect local tropospheric chemistry in ways that are not unlike the way tropospheric chemistry can be influenced by industrial processes and automobiles. Grasses in general are very low emitters of hydrocarbons, of these non-methane hydrocarbons. Woody plants are highly variable, and that's something we don't know a lot about. Some species are very high emitters of things like isoprene and monoterpenes. Other species, very low emitters as well. We're kind of wondering, yeah, what are the consequences as you go from a grassland to a shrubland? Not only in the land surface atmosphere sort of the dynamics in terms of wind and cloud formation, but also in terms of the chemistry of the troposphere and how that might affect local greenhouse gas longevity and concentrations. It sounds like this replacement with woody plants is not a great thing. Is that true across the board? Is it a sign that a system is a degraded system if we see these woody plants? Kind of depends on your definition and what your values are on land. So there are some definite you know, negative consequences, but we have to kind of consider the trade-offs involved. So for example, when woody plants encroach, some systems, uh, the evidence suggests that we'll get substantially more carbon sequestration because that carbon that, that's taken up in photosynthesis is being tied up in woody tissue that's very long-lived or it's being translocated below ground to root systems that go very, very deep. And so that carbon may be tied up for long, long periods of time. And so there are trade-offs of, okay, the woody plants when they encroach may decrease forage production for livestock, but they may increase carbon sequestration. So depending on what value society places on these different products from our ecosystems, that's something we have to factor into the decisions we make. So a lot of times our job as scientists isn't so much to tell people what to do as to identify these scenarios. Say, if you manage this system in this way, you're likely to see these kinds of changes and you're going to have some consequences. We have to decide as a society, you know, which of those scenarios we might want for the near term or for the long term. In thinking about those scenarios, maybe implicit in them or maybe not is this idea that you do have control over what happens with these systems. So once a place transitions into a woodland, is it possible to get it to go back if you want those grassland services? This is the question that's been kind of at the forefront, and we've been working on this since the 1940s and 50s. When you're talking about woody plants proliferating in an area where they've historically been less abundant, there's a whole field of science called brush management in the rangeland arena. And these are scientists that have, since the 1940s and 50s, said, if we want to reestablish grasslands, either for the biodiversity value or to maintain or increase forage production for livestock, how can we do that? 
after World War II, there was all this heavy equipment available and uh, petroleum products were very inexpensive. So there was lots of mechanical manipulation of woody vegetation, chaining, roller chopping. And then on top of that, there were herbicide effects. So people said, well, maybe we can use herbicides to diminish or reduce the cover of woody plants, let grasslands back in the system. People's views on fire started changing kind of back in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. People are starting to be more receptive to the use of fire and getting fire reestablished as a natural process. So the idea was, well, how can we use fire to more progressively manage woody vegetation and maybe not have to use chemicals or mechanical approaches? So that kind of led to the evolution then of integrated brush management. So the idea was, well, maybe we have to go out and use an herbicide to knock back the woody plant cover initially. We know that that effect might be short-lived, but if we can knock it back for five, ten years and let the grasses recover, then we could potentially use prescribed fire as a follow-up treatment. So then over time, we can get back on top of things and get this natural process of fire reestablished and in a cost-effective way manage the, the ratio of woody and herbaceous vegetation to what meets our management objectives. So this has been an ongoing sort of issue uh, since the 1950s and 60s. Early attempts were kind of wall to wall. Now we're kind of moving towards a more precision approach. And so people have tried different things like saying instead of wall to wall treatments, let's target areas where we're most likely to get the response that we want for our management objectives. Say you do get the response that you want in some of these regions, how does that then interact with then using those places again with grazing and other types of land use that then potentially disturb the system? Once you embark on a progressive brush management program, you have to simultaneously adjust your other management practices like stocking rates and like season of grazing and like duration of grazing. The management of the woody vegetation and the livestock should be an integrated thing, not just one or the other. As climate continues to change, what does the future look like for this balance between woody plants and grasslands? You know, woody plants have already encroached in some areas, and it's still an ongoing process in other areas. One thing that might happen under future climates, if we get longer windows of more harsh conditions, like longer droughts or more frequent droughts, then that may shift the balance in favor of woody plants that are more adapted to droughty, drier conditions relative to the herbaceous plants like grasses. So woody plants have some adaptations going for them that may help them survive if we get to warmer, drier conditions. And we might see big changes in the types of woody plants. So in some areas, things like mesquite or creosote bush, their balance may start to change. We've seen examples in the Chihuahuan Desert where Black grama grasslands initially gave way to tar bush, and then the tar bush subsequently gave way to creosote bush. We don't understand that. So woody plant encroachment isn't necessarily a simple thing. And this point in time where woody plant encroachment has already occurred in a lot of our ecosystems, one question is, what's the future of these current woody plant communities? And will they start to change and a different group of woody plants start to replace the group that's presently there today? So in the cold deserts, for example, we're seeing a lot of juniper encroachment into sagebrush. 
Historically, we were worried about sagebrush encroachment or proliferation in grasslands. Now, if you're interested in uh, uh, sage grouse, you're really concerned about the juniper encroachment into sagebrush. So we may start changing the kinds of woody plants that are dominating on the landscape. And we might also see some change to the point where even some of the current woody vegetation might start to suffer. And maybe we start to see a shift to plants like succulents, like cacti, becoming more advantaged under future climatic conditions or climate in conjunction with land management. The other thing that's happening across many parts of the western U.S. are invasions of exotic, non-native grasses, either annual grasses like the cheatgrass in the cold deserts, or the invasion of things like buffalo grass and lovegrass in the hot deserts. And so now we're introducing species that dramatically change the fire cycle. Our historic concerns over woody plant encroachment may give way to concerns over the invasions of these exotic grasses, which change the fire cycle, which then reinforce the abundance of these, these exotic grasses. And so we may have many ecosystems that went from a native perennial grassland to a shrub-invaded or a, a tree-invaded grassland and there, the next step might be a domination by cheatgrass and annual grass or some of these perennial African grasses like buffalo grass and lovegrass. When you have these kinds of questions about big landscape transitions, how do you study them? What are some of the methods that you do in your research? You have to take a, a broad-based approach. And it's kind of this balance between understanding mechanisms, you know, what's behind all of this, to how does this play out at large scales over long periods of time. So to study these things, you've got to have small plot kind of local studies at the scale of seeds and seedlings. But over large scales, we use remote sensing tools to document the rates and dynamics of change over large areas over long time periods. And ultimately, we want to combine those different perspectives, you know, to try and understand the mechanisms involved and then how they play out over long time frames, over larger areas, so we can extrapolate to areas that we don't have much information on. What first got you interested in studying woody plant encroachment? Well, I had a professor as an undergraduate in a plant physiology course. He had us do a paper in his class, and, and I started wondering about grazing effects on grass. Well, it turned out that he, coincidentally, had a big project up in Arctic Alaska on vegetation adaptations to extreme environmental conditions. He said, we don't know anything about herbivore effects, grazing and browsing effects on Arctic vegetation. So he said, hey, how would you like to go work up in Alaska and study this? Because it sounds like you're interested in it. So he sent me up there. And so that's when I kind of got my foot in the door of what research science was all about. I decided this is good. I'd like to continue on this path. So that's when I started looking into graduate school. And so I ended up going to Colorado State. I worked with a fellow named uh, Jim Detling, who's doing a lot of work on herbivore effects on ecosystem processes uh, in the northern Great Plains. And when I finished my dissertation, this position at Texas A&M came along, a faculty position, and they wanted an ecologist to work on woody plants that were invading grasslands of the southern Great Plains. They'd had a long history of doing brush management with limited success. So they were backing up and saying, well, let's start getting more information on the biology and ecology of this woody vegetation, and maybe that'll help us uh, identify a better way to approach the management. 
What do you enjoy about being a scientist? I like the search for knowledge, finding new information, or the problem solving. So my research has been more question-driven, and we identify the question, and we say, now what tools do we need to address this? Well, Steve, it's been so interesting to hear about your work and the state of our changing landscape. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. To listen to this interview with Steve Archer again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.